This is the FCB Podcast Network. They freed us all from tyranny. We stand for things for liberty. And they thought so we would be America. Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast, American History for Kids. I'm your host, Amelia Hamilton. Last week, we wrapped up the Bill of Rights, and that's where we're going to leave the Constitution. There have been many more amendments since then, but they really come after the founding period. And at this podcast, we are all about the founding. But I know that the whole Constitution and the Bill of Rights have taken us months to get through, and there was so much to learn. So today, we're just going to do a little wrap-up, the things that we really need to remember about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. I have a constitutional expert joining us, so let's dig right in. Hi, my name is Clark Neely, and I am Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. What? Who is Cato? Why, why is there something named for him? Well, um, the Cato in this case is um, not just one person. It's a group of people um, who produced a body of work called Cato's Letters, uh, which was um, correspondence that took place during uh, the founding era, just before the American Revolution, um, and uh, essentially uh, articulated a political philosophy um, that our country would come to adopt. And the, it boils down to the idea um, that the most important entity in any given society is the individual. So we as individual human beings um, are the most important thing, not the government. And that was really a revolutionary idea because in most yeah. societies up until that point, there was some, you know, king or, you know, warlord or, or, or chief who took the position that I am the most important and then I create a society and you serve me. And we turn that on its head. Uh, and so um, there were a number of writings during the founding era, including Cato's letters, uh, yeah. that articulated this philosophy, and that's the one that inspires both our Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Cool. You guys are keeping that spirit alive today. I love it. Yeah. All right. So we have just wrapped up the Bill of Rights. Uh, we talked about the Tenth Amendment last week, so we are done with, with those um, you know, first ten. Of course, there are many more amendments, but for the Bill of Rights. So I just wanted to kind of talk to you and wrap it all up. What are you know, some of the big themes that we should take from you know, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights you know, going forward in our lives? Well, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that the Constitution is a kind of a rule book and it sets forth uh, the ways that government um, can legitimately operate. Um, you know, in some ways, the simplest way to run a government is just to have one person in charge and then they, they, everything they say becomes the law. Uh, and every decision they make um, ends up being implemented, whether it's just or unjust, fair or unfair. Um, another way to uh, to run a government is what's called a pure democracy, so that um, you just people get together, they vote on any given policy, and then whatever the majority says, um, that becomes the policy. And it turns out that there are real problems with each of those approaches, and, and it essentially boils down to um, there is a tendency, both on the part of uh, tyrants or, or you know, uh, uh, autocrats, people who, who run the entire country, um, to act mostly in their own interests and not in the interests of individuals and not to respect things like individual rights and the fact that we all have different 
uh, preferences, different tastes, and uh, different ambitions and goals in life. Um, and the problem with pure democracy is similar in the sense that you can have a tyranny of majorities. You can have a bunch of people who get together and they prefer one policy, and then they just ram that down the throat of everybody else, um, even people who uh, disagree. And so what our society uh, tried to do and what our constitution uh, sets forth is a government that operates on the basis of democracy and operates on the basis of majorities deciding what the policies will be, but within certain parameters, within constraints that the government cannot exceed. And one example of that would be freedom of speech. You have a right in America to go out and criticize the government if you want to do that. In many other countries, perhaps most countries throughout history, you did not have that right. And if you go out and criticize the government in some countries today, so for example, uh, Turkey, um, where people have been famously prosecuted and put in prison for simply criticizing the government. Well, guess what? You're not only permitted to do that in this country, you have a constitutional right to do it, even if the majority of people disagree with you, and even if the majority of people think that it should be a criminal offense for which they can put you in jail, guess what? They can't do it. And the reason they can't do it is because the Constitution says that we all have a right of free speech, and that that's one of those rules, one of those limits uh, that exists in the Constitution that the government uh, has to respect, even if the government doesn't want to respect it. Yeah, and you touched on another, I think, big theme is the individual, you know, being being sovereign, being the king, um, you know, and that was something that certainly that our founders had not experienced as a colony, you know, the, and they knew they wanted to do something different. So why is the individual so important in America and how is that different? Yeah, I think this is a really important point to underscore the fact that um, both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution um, really stand for the proposition um, that individuals have individual moral worth, they have individual autonomy, that means we get to make decisions about what we want to get out of life and how to go about it. Um, that doesn't mean that society has to be inherently individualistic or atomistic, where everybody's thinking about themselves all the time and all you do is try to get ahead and who cares about anybody else. That is not the idea whatsoever. Um, on the contrary, a uh, French um, political theorist uh, named Alexis de Tocqueville came to America about 40 years after the uh, founding of this country, and he remarked how um, remark how incredible it is that Americans spend a lot of time working together. That we, we do things in groups, we do things in communities. Uh, we're members of churches and Rotary clubs and other kinds of organizations. Um, but the point is this: it's that the government doesn't get to dictate to people how to live their lives. It doesn't get to dictate to you what you have to do for a living, whether you have to be a farmer or a factory worker or a lawyer or a doctor. Um, you have to get married to this person and not this other person, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Those are choices that we get to make for ourselves as we go through life. And that doesn't mean, again, that we have to live some lonely individualistic life where we never work with other people, we never have families or communities. It simply means that we get to choose who's going to be in our family. We get to choose who is going to be in our community, who we want to work with, who we don't want to work with, who we want to associate with, who we don't. I really think that's the beauty of the American project is a respect for the ability and the right of individuals to make those decisions about their own life. And again, that doesn't mean you go through life as some lonely island where you never associate with other people. On the contrary, America has some of the best communities of any country um, in history. And one of the reasons for that is that it's people who get to decide when to get together and, and, and who to associate with. And the government doesn't get to go around dictating those kinds of things. Uh, to individuals, and I think there's something very beautiful in that. Absolutely, and that idea of communities coming together, you know, rather than having things 
imposed on them, I think really goes along with what you said about, um, you know, not being a direct democracy, about people working together. And that was against something that they saw, you know, being ruled by a king who was an ocean away, it didn't work. You need to talk to the people who are there living those experiences every day. And now our country is even bigger, so much more diverse. And that's why I think things like the Electoral College work so well. You know, we did an episode about how that's, you know, actually a really fair way to pick somebody to represent this big, crazy country with all these people. Um, so I like how that all ties together. Yeah, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is to have a sense of humility about the fact that there are always trade-offs. So for example, if we had a pure democracy, then people would have a bigger voice in how the country is run. But the trade-off would be that a lot of people would then have to live under policies that they don't agree with. They just happen to be in a minority. So there really are trade-offs. Um, and as you mentioned, some of the uh, uh, designs of our constitution, like the electoral college, like separation of powers, like the process for enacting legislation, are specifically designed, actually, believe it or not, to thwart the interests of fair political majorities. In other words, to say to people, you know what, if 51% of the people support this policy and 49% of people oppose this policy, then we're going to make it really difficult for you 51% to ram it down the throats of everybody else. And I think um, one of the most fascinating and profound insights about our Constitution, it is not truly a majoritarian document. It is a super majoritarian document, by which I mean um, the, the, the Constitution is designed in such a way so that really major policy changes. Again, the Constitution is not a majoritarian document, in my view. It is a super majoritarian document. So when it's being uh, applied correctly um, in order to implement major policy change, and it's not enough to have 51% of people, um, a constitution is designed in such a way to make it very difficult to implement major policies unless you have a really large percentage of people supporting them. And I think that's one of the ways in which the Supreme Court has most failed uh, the, the, to, to faithfully implement constitutional design, is allowing many, many things to be done on the basis of fair majority support. Mm -hmm. In fact, those things should only be done if they have super majority support. Absolutely. Another big theme that we've been talking about throughout this whole founding period is compromise. You know, through the framing of the Constitution and writing the Bill of Rights, really nobody, no one person got just what they wanted, but you had to come up with something that everybody could live with, which is like you were talking about with, it's not just a majority, you know, you have to have something that works for everyone. Yep. No, that's exactly right. Compromise is so important. I mean, compromise is important whether you're just talking about a relationship with another human being like a friend or a spouse. It's important when you're talking about inside of a classroom so that you know people don't understand. You can't just do whatever you want at any given time. Um, you, there are other people who have other interests, and so we have to compromise. And probably the biggest compromise that's reflected in the Constitution is um, whether or not there should even be a national government or a federal government. Because up until... Uh, the uh, ratification of the U.S. Constitution in uh, 1788, there was no U.S. of A. There was no federal government. There was no yeah. national government that could sort of go around ordering people to do things. It was just the states, and the states um, would sometimes agree with each other, sometimes not. But you would essentially, the, the governing body for, 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 for citizens would be not the federal government. If there wasn't one, it would be the states. So on the one hand, you had people who thought there should not be a federal government because there's no way to create one without essentially creating a kind of a Frankenstein's monster, this incredibly powerful um, uh, body that would almost certainly start tyrannizing people, start violating people's rights and preventing them from doing uh, the things that they want to do and living the life the way they, they want to live their life. 
the other end of the spectrum, there were people who felt like, no, we absolutely do need a, a federal government. It needs to be really powerful. Um, it should it should have all the powers. And the compromise that was worked out was that, yes, we will have a federal government, but no, it will not have every power that you can imagine. It will only have a few powers, like the ability to create an army, uh, the ability to have a national system of weights and measures, intellectual property, but really just a few things. That was the compromise uh, that was worked out and that is reflected in the text of the Constitution. Unfortunately, about 150 years later, the Supreme Court decided it wasn't important to respect that compromise anymore and just basically said, you know what, if, um, if the other branches want to continue to respect that compromise, that's fine. If they don't want to respect that compromise, that's fine, too. Uh, as you can probably guess, I strongly disagree with that decision on the part of the Supreme Court. I think it was one of the biggest abdications of responsibility that we've ever seen from any branch of government. Unfortunately, um, yeah. the Supreme Court um, in the 1930s just decided that it would no longer uh, really to make any serious effort to enforce this compromise. That was, I think, a really smart one. Um, and I think we paid a huge price for the fact that uh, the, the, the branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, uh, no longer really respect that compromise, that we will have a federal government, but it won't have very many powers. Mm-hmm. But another great thing about the way that we are America is set up is that we can fix it. It can take a lot of time and a lot of persuasion, which is you know something that we saw in um, you know things like the Federalist Papers. You know they were writing back and forth trying to persuade people. Um, you know, so we can we can fix things, but it takes time. Yeah, it does. And I think one of the biggest problems in our country is the judiciary. Um, I've been a constitutional lawyer my whole life. I, I, I revere the Constitution. I love it. Unfortunately, I think that uh, the judiciary has been insufficiently serious about enforcing constitutional limits on government power. Um, and my theory, and it is just a theory, but my theory is that one of the reasons for that um, is that the federal judiciary, the, the, the body of judges um, who are primarily responsible for enforcing the Constitution, um, actually are very similar to one another in a way that almost no one has noticed, and it's this. It's not that they all went to the same school. It's not all they all come from the same socioeconomic demographic. Instead, the thing that most unites federal judges is that a wildly disproportionate number of them used to represent the government in court before they become judges. Very few lawyers. There's lots of lawyers in this country. Very few of them ever represented the government in court. But guess what? Among judges, a wildly disproportionate number of them are drawn from that tiny percentage of lawyers who used to represent the government in court. So I think what happened um, is that so many federal judges went from making arguments in favor of government power to deciding cases involving government power. Uh, And I think it's one of the reasons why the federal judiciary has been, um, in my view, insufficiently um, committed to enforcing constitutional limits on government power, whether it's protecting our rights, which I think the courts don't do as vigorously as they should, or enforcing what we call structural limits on government power um, and, and for example, enforcing that part of the Constitution, the Tenth Amendment, that says that not very many powers are given to the federal government. Most of those powers are given to the states and should be exercised uh, by the states. Uh, as we've discussed, I think that the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court has been um, insufficiently committed to to enforcing that constitutional structure. Um, and unfortunately, much to our cost, it, it, it results in a net loss of freedom. Um, and I would say that we are significantly less free today in this country uh, than the Constitution means for us to be. Yeah. Do you think our founders would be surprised by that? Well, I think they'd be astonished. I think they would be absolutely, I think they'd be besides themselves um, when they, when they, if they were able to come back and see the sheer size of the federal government and see all of the different things uh, that it involves itself in. Keep in mind, the Constitution only gives the federal government a very small number of powers that are listed 
um, right there in the first kind of chapter of the Constitution, mm -hmm. Article One. Um, and now, uh, basically, the federal government, uh, it, it, it's almost, you, you can't even think of anything so trivial that the federal government doesn't involve itself in that thing. Now, again, reasonable people can disagree about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, but the, the Constitution was written in such a way uh, to make clear that the federal government has no business whatsoever um, involving itself in, in relatively small details of our lives, and yet it does so anyway. So, yeah, I think the framers, um, uh, the founders of this country who wrote or framed the Constitution, I think they would be absolutely appalled uh, at what the country looks like. Now, a lot of things I think they would be, you know, enthusiastic about. I think there are some things that they would, I think, for example, most of them would be very happy that we would not, not finally manage to get rid of slavery, um, which is the most evil institution, uh, arguably, in the history of mankind, and certainly yeah. the most evil institution in the history of the United States. There were many uh, uh, people of the founding era who, who rejected slavery as an institution. Um, they probably wouldn't be surprised to know that we had to fight a bloody uh, civil war in order to do it. So I think that's something that would make them very happy, but I think they would be absolutely appalled at the size of the federal government. Yeah. And we talked a little bit um, last week when we were talking about the 10th Amendment about how the way that things have, have grown, you know, things that are certainly not on the list. And one that really touches kids is schools. You know, yeah. certainly nowhere in the Constitution does it say that the federal government in Washington, D.C. is going to decide what happens every day when a kid goes to school. No, that's right. Um, and again, it's so important to keep this in mind. It, in, as a matter of humility, it's important for us to realize that the Constitution doesn't necessarily look exactly the way you would like it to look. I'll give you an example. I'm a libertarian. That means I believe in limited government and personal freedom. Um, I would prefer that the federal government did not have the power to collect an income tax. This is the tax that the government takes some of the money that you've earned and spends it on things. And one of the reasons for that is the invasion of privacy. It's not just the federal government taking your money. It's all of the questions that you have to answer, all of the things the federal government demands to know, whether you've had some medical problems that year, whether or not you've you know, done certain things as a family that, that uh, might tell them something about how things are going. It's just an unbelievable amount of information you have to share with the government so they can decide how much you owe in taxes. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly objectionable. Ah, but guess what? There is a, a part of the Constitution, the 16th Amendment, that was enacted in the early 1900s, there was no question it gives the federal government this power. I strongly disagree with that. I think it was a terrible idea. I think it was a disaster. But in humility, I do have to acknowledge that it's in there. Same thing with uh, a federal role in education. Reasonable people can argue about whether it would be a good idea or a bad idea for the federal government to be involved in public education. But one thing that is absolutely clear is there is nothing in the text of the Constitution that remotely gives the federal government the power to involve itself in public education. Um, and, and it does it anyway. And that's another example of what I described earlier uh, about the federal courts being insufficiently protective uh, yeah. of constitutional limits on government power. Again, reasonable people can disagree about whether it's a good idea or a bad idea as a policy matter for the federal government to be involved in public education. But there is not the slightest doubt that there isn't a single word in the text of the Constitution that remotely gives the federal government the authority to involve itself in that area. And the only, only reason it's allowed to do that is because Congress pretends as if there's a role for the federal government. The executive branch that's led by the president pretends as if there's a legitimate federal role. And the judiciary pretends as if there's a legitimate federal role um, in public education. But there's not. Um, and and the, the founders of this country made a deliberate decision to withhold that power from the federal government. I think that was a wise decision. Other people might disagree, but there's no real doubt about what the decision was. And the decision was the federal government doesn't have this power. 
Um, and so the federal government exercises the power anyway, I would say illegally. Yes. And the Ninth Amendment and Tenth Amendment are kind of two sides of the same coin. You know, the Ninth Amendment says just you know, with personal freedoms, even if it's not on the list, you shouldn't assume that it's not a right that should be protected. And right. the Tenth Amendment says for the government, if it's not on the list, it is not their business. Yeah. You think our founders would be surprised how many things we've kind of shifted from the Ninth to the Tenth, how many personal freedoms we've kind of given to the government? I think that they would be mostly shocked about how much power the federal government exercises. We talked about that a moment ago. I think they'd be absolutely dismayed that they had expressed in such clear terms um, a commitment to having a very small federal government leaving almost everything else up to the states. We've, we've really flipped that around. Yeah. So I think that's the thing they would be most surprised by. In terms of the protection of individual rights, I think we are doing a better job there. And I think in, in many areas, they would see how things are now. For example, we talked earlier about the ability to criticize the government by exercising mm -hmm. your freedom of speech. I think that they would be, uh, I think they'd be very um, reassured by how protective the courts have been of that right and how willing people are to exercise that right. Um, I think, again, I mentioned earlier the elimination of slavery, um, which is something I think that most of them would be uh, very enthusiastic about and the seriousness with which uh, the courts uh, enforce what's called the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, which prohibits the government from making kind of arbitrary distinctions uh, between people uh, just on the basis of things like race or gender, etc. So these are a few things I think that most of the founders would be quite enthusiastic about. But on balance, uh, I think that they would be very disturbed about the amount of power that the government uh, exercises. I'll just give you a quick illustration. I don't know if most of you have probably had babysitters before, but if your parents hire a babysitter, um, generally speaking, there's an understanding that that babysitter really only has a couple of jobs to keep you safe, maybe to feed you, make sure you, you've got a book to read or a movie to watch, something like that. But imagine that your parents hired a babysitter and they had that understanding and suddenly your babysitter has the understanding of, no, 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 I, I, I think I have lots of other jobs. I have, you know, it's my job to take you on a trip around the world and show you all the sites, you know, and to expose you to every kind of food in the world, um, you know, and, and teach you a bunch of words that you don't know, maybe including some bad words. Um, I think your parents would be really dismayed to discover that they had a babysitter who had, who had such a misconception of their of their appropriate yeah. job. I think that's a good comparison to the federal government. Um, federal government is really only supposed to have a few jobs, you know, uh, make sure the country is protected, make sure there's, uh, you know, a, a system of, of, of uniform weights and measures and roads and just leave it at that. But man, the federal government just could not leave it at that. Yeah. And that's that's a great example. I love that parent babysitter example. And it's almost like, you know, the parents in that have just said, yeah, okay, babysitter, <laughs> do what you want. Because, you know, the, the people in a lot of ways have not have not fought back. They've just let the government take more power. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's right. And again, you know, I don't want to beat a, a, a drum here, but <clears throat> part of the problem is that we do have three branches of government that were designed to be, you know, kind of in tension with each other and to mm -hmm. push back against each other. And I do think that, that the, the branch of government that, that has the, the most clear responsibility for limiting the other two is the judiciary. Right. And I think it was a huge and tragic mistake uh, to populate the federal judiciary uh, with so many government lawyers. I think I think so many federal judges have a kind of a an unconscious allegiance to the government. They spent so much of their career making arguments on behalf of government and rationalizing the exercise of government power that when they then become judges, I think they carry a lot of that baggage with them. And I think they are too inclined to say, well, you know, I, I used to make arguments like this on behalf of the government. That sounds reasonable to me. So I think we'd be much, much better off um, if, if a much, much smaller percentage of, of judges uh, were former government lawyers 
and a higher percentage of judges were people who used to work against the government and are used to making arguments in the opposite direction and saying, you know what, the government needs to be limited and the government doesn't have the power to do this thing. Uh, so I don't know for sure that that's where the problem lies, but I suspect that it's a big part of it. Yeah. All right. So aside from the judiciary, um, for people like you and me who love the Constitution and hopefully the kids listening, what can we be doing to get back to that that founding ideal? Yeah, well, I think that um, the best thing that, that any of us can do is to um, really try to approach this question of what should the government look like and how uh, did they write the Constitution with kind of, again, a sort of a sense of humility and realize that um, you may have your own ideas about what would be a good idea and what wouldn't be a good idea. Um, and that's perfectly fine. But we are all subject to the, the limits that are put in the Constitution. And so even if you feel very strongly that the federal government should have a, um, a robust role in public education, there is a process for that. And the correct process is to go and, and, and create a constitutional amendment that says, hey, you know what? The federal government was not given the power over public education, but they should have that power. So now we're going to vote on that as a country. Uh, and so just to educate oneself about the origins of the Constitution, uh, where it came from, why we have one, the Declaration of Independence, which really articulates a kind of a moral framework in which the Constitution um, is situated. But I think, again, the most important thing is to have that sense of humility and to realize that just because you think something is a good idea or just because you think something is a bad idea, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Constitution agrees with you. Again, I think that giving the federal government the power to have an income tax and take money from people that they've earned is a terrible idea. And I think it's a disastrously bad policy. But I have to have the humility of recognizing that most people disagree with me and they passed an amendment giving the federal government that power. So familiarize yourself with the document, familiarize yourself with its history, but also um, try to have the character to recognize that uh, we all have to approach it with a sense of humility and realize that not everything you think should be in it is in it, and it may even contain some things that you disagree with. And guess what? That's compromise, and that, that's, that's what you have to have in order to have a flourishing um, democracy like we have. Respect other people's rights. Um, you can certainly advocate for your own rights, but at the end of the day, recognize that we live in a large, um, society with lots of different people with lots of different perspectives and tastes and let's try to respect each other and get along. Absolutely. All right. So a fun question. Um, do you have a favorite clause or a favorite amendment? Yeah, I think so. Uh, um, so I think that for me, um, it's a little bit obscure. Most people haven't read it because it's a little bit outside of the Bill of Rights, but for me, it's the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution after the Civil War to make clear that there were significant limits on how much power state governments could exercise. Uh, up until that point, there really weren't any significant limits in the federal constitution as against state governments. The federal government, uh, I'm sorry, the U.S. Constitution uh, up until that point spoke mostly for the power of the federal government. But what happened with the 14th Amendment in 1868 is that people realized, you know what, um, we thought that states would be much more respectful of people's freedom, and we thought that states would be much more enlightened in the way they govern, and you know what, we just made a mistake. They're pretty horrible sometimes. States were the ones, it was state governments that propped up the institution of slavery. It was state governments that in, instituted these things called Black Codes and Jim Crow, which was, a, mm -hmm. which was a, an American form of apartheid, of racial separation um, that happened in, in the wake of the Civil War after the elimination of formal slavery. And I think it was really beautiful when people got together and said, you know what, we've, we've placed way too much faith in the integrity uh, and the legitimacy of state governments. And so we're going to add this 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that says from now on, states have to respect 
uh, the right of people to equal protection of the law. I mean, don't treat me differently just because of the color of my skin or because I happen to be a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. States have to respect due process, which means they can't hurt you or take anything away from you without a valid procedure. Um, and also, and this is a really key one that the Supreme Court, unfortunately, and you may detect the theme here, um, mm-hmm. has fallen down on, on the job of protecting. There's also a provision in the 14th Amendment that says that no state shall enforce any law um, that uh, impairs the the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, which is essentially this whole mass of, of rights that we have. Um, that provision of the 14th Amendment so far has not been enforced in any serious way, uh, but if it were properly enforced, it would protect things like the ability to pick what job you want to do for a living, protect your ability to own property and to do what you think is best for that property, again, provided you recognize other people's rights, um, to travel around the country or travel around the state, make decisions about your family, etc. So, that's what I'm working on with my colleagues. One of the most important things that I've worked on throughout my career as a constitutional lawyer is persuading the Supreme Court to be faithful, to be more faithful mm-hmm. to the text of the 14th Amendment. But then to summarize, the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution after the Civil War to correct a mistake that had made, which is to put too much confidence um, in the integrity and the, uh, uh, the the trustworthiness of state governments. Um, we were much, more, much, much too trusting of state governments, and the 14th Amendment says, you know what? We need to equip people with the ability to assert individual rights against state governments, and that's what they did. Yep, we're always working toward that more perfect union, as they as they said. That's right. All right, one final fun question. If the Bill of Rights, or if the Constitution, including the Bill of Rights, were an emoji, what do you think it would be? Um, I think it would be a sword and a shield. Um, I think that, that one of the biggest uh, risks when you create a government um, is that you will create something that ends up um, harming you in exactly the way that you, you you created it to protect you from. One, one, one sort of whimsical way to put it would be to say, if you imagine you own a farm or a ranch and you have a bunch of coyotes um, mm-hmm. stealing your livestock and menacing your children. Um, if you bring a bunch of timber wolves onto the land, <laughs> you will solve your coyote problem, but you'll now have a timber wolf but problem. But now you've got timber wolves, yeah. <laughs> so the government was created to protect us, you know, from things like you know, uh, bandits and robbers and, and uh, uh, you know, bullies and so forth. And it does a, an effective job. But what you have to be careful of is to make sure the government itself doesn't become a bandit and a bully. And that's really what the Constitution was designed to do. And so the way I see the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is it's kind of a sword and a shield that equips each and every one of us um, with the ability to protect ourselves against this very powerful entity that we've created, namely the government. But I think we do need, because there really are bad guys out there and there really are countries and, and yeah you know, uh, uh, tyrants out there who, who want to do harm to us. So we need a government to protect us. But guess what? The government itself is perfectly capable of becoming a bandit and a bully. And so the Constitution is our sword and shield against the power of the government. Yeah, I love that answer. I think we will leave it there today. Thank you so much, Clark. My pleasure. I love that Clark said that the Constitution is a sword and a shield. It's a sword because it's a weapon we can use to fight back if our rights are being threatened. And it's a shield because it protects us and our rights. So it's a weapon and a way to defend ourselves. And that is something pretty special that we have here in America. Thank you so much for listening. Next time, we'll be talking about George Washington how he was chosen as president, and all about his inauguration when he became our first president. In the meantime, you can find us at Growing Patriots on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until then.
This has been a presentation of the FCB Podcast Network, where real talk lives. Visit us online at fcbpodcasts.com.